The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. His influence on the course of English literature began within his lifetime. So, too, did the case against him. He was venerated by some, admired by many, but also, at times, ignored. He was famous for what now seemed to be the wrong things. And while many believed him to be the pinnacle of poetic achievement, he was often poorly reviewed, and he, as a poet and as a person, was disparaged. His life was full of contradictions, and of course, he produced some marvelous, majestic poetry. William Wordsworth, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. William Wordsworth. Oh, I first read him in college in a readings in literature course I took, and we read Pride and Prejudice and a few poems that I remember. One was My Last Duchess by Robert Browning, and another one was The World is Too Much With Us by this guy. This guy we're talking about today, William Wordsworth. I became besotted with him later, besotted with his poetry, I guess, when I was taking an upper-level course on romanticism. And although I would say he was coming in behind Keats and probably Shelley, Byron, Blake, I don't know. I can't really rank those six. Every time I do, I think, no, no, Byron can't be last. Or Coleridge. No way Coleridge is last. <laughs> or Blake, or Wordsworth, or Shelley. I guess I've never had Keats last on the list, but I could make a case. They're all just that good, and I love them all in different ways and at different times. Wordsworth didn't die young. That was one of his problems. He became something of a crank. And so the younger poets began to view him as, as something of a, a traitor, an obstacle to poetry, but, but really a traitor. I think that's the right word. Where were the ideals of the young Wordsworth? Where was the empathy and compassion? Here was a man with, who had once had revolutionary zeal. What was he doing as a, as a government functionary, as a crusty old man? And more to the point, what had happened to his poetry? They loved the early stuff. They recognized it as great, as important. But then his poetry stopped working for them in the same way. What had happened? So I wanted to do this episode ever since I started the podcast. He's Wordsworth is on the list of people who deserve a bunch of episodes, not just one. But we haven't even really done just one yet. Maybe we've talked about a poem or two along the way. And then last summer, I took a trip to the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. Washington State. It was a tough trip. Maybe I should say it was mixed. We were there to grieve the one-year anniversary death of a loved one, but we were also on a family trip, which we don't always get to do these days now that my son is in college. And so we were there to celebrate life, too. It was an intense week. And on the peninsula, we went to Hurricane Ridge and the whole rainforest and I guess some people associate this part of the world with the Twilight books. So yes, we were in Forks. The Olympic Peninsula is really an amazing place. A lot of countries would claim it as their pride and joy. That they have this place you can go see. Well, we're blessed in America that we have Alaska and the Florida Keys and the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls and all these other amazing places. So... The Olympic Peninsula sometimes gets overlooked, but it is spectacular. The beaches along the West Coast, simply amazing. And we rented a little house by a river. And it was one of those, those unforeseen events that turned out to be miraculous. It was just perfect. It was just what we needed just at that time. There were no other houses within. It was in the middle of nowhere, this little house. You drove down this long driveway and you think you're, you're approaching some kind of trailer or something. That's how it looks. But it was a real house. And then you get inside 
and you look out the back window, the back porch, and there's no other houses within view, and you can walk down to this river, and you can't see anyone else. You have this whole stretch of gorgeous river to yourself. The river curved at one end, and there was a bend at the other. Kind of an S. But where you were behind this house, where we were, is just your little stretch of the river. And there was a steep hill on the other side of us. You really couldn't see anything but the river. And it was like owning a piece of earth right there. And I had brought along Wordsworth, poetry of William Wordsworth, an old, old collection that I've had forever called Selected Poetry and Prose. It's a yellow cover, and it shows a river or a waterfall on the cover. And I sat on, this, on the back porch of this place in the bright sun. Everyone else was sleeping. They're all inside napping. I'm on the back porch with this sun setting and the cool, fresh air of the Pacific Northwest, and I'm just listening to the river drifting by, drinking coffee, and reading Wordsworth's poem, Tintern Abbey. And it felt like the poem was teaching me or reminding me how to appreciate scenes just like the one I was in and how to appreciate moments like the one I was in, how to remember, how to reflect, how to enjoy and appreciate, how to feel. And Wordsworth, there's a vein of poetry that I think Wordsworth can be given credit for starting, or even if he had a few predecessors, for taking and making his own and pushing it forward in such a way that it changed not just the verse on the page, but the attitudes of people making the verse, as well as those reading it. That's why the later romantics were so disappointed with the older Wordsworth, with the person he became, because the younger Wordsworth was their king. And mine too, on that trip, at least. But King suggests something hereditary, and that was not the case for Wordsworth and poetry. His ancestors were not poets. They were what were once called gentle kin. His mother Anne was the daughter of a successful mercer. It's like a trader in textiles. His father, or a seller of textiles. His father John, an attorney. This was the world of country squires and farmers and landed gentry, which Wordsworth was proud of being part of that world. It's in the northwest part of England in Cumberland. It's what's called the Lake District, which Wordsworth and company helped to make internationally famous. It's closer to Glasgow to the north and Liverpool to the south than it is to London. Wordsworth felt a connection to the land and to the people in it. You feel his, his awe of nature, his love for nature, but also a, a, a sort of pride of ownership, including some of the residents. You see this when he looks out at the, at the countryside and sees the houses there. This was his place. It flowed through his veins. His ancestors had not just lived there, but they'd made an imprint on it. Wordsworth was born in 1770. Keep that date in mind with 1789 looming ahead of us. He had an older brother, Richard, and three younger siblings, his brothers John and Christopher, and his sister Dorothy, with whom he shared a lifelong affinity. The children were split up during their childhood. Their parents died young. Wordsworth was only eight when his mother died, and then he was sent off to boarding school. That's when he was separated from Dorothy. While he was at boarding school, his father died. William was 13 when that happened. At 17, he was sent to Cambridge to study. But he wasn't a great student at university. Even after he got his degree, by age 20, he was viewed by his relatives as stiff and moody with a temper and, he, and stubbornly reluctant to figure out what he was going to do to join some profession. He was supposed to go into the church for a while, but he refused, and as we will see, that became kind of not an option for him. He considered law his father's profession, but 
That didn't really suit him. He went down to London and, quote, idled aimlessly, end quote, for a few months, and then he wound up in France. He'd been to France once before during a vacation on a holiday while he was at Cambridge, and he had made a walking tour of France and Switzerland, a walking tour. All of his life, Wordsworth was a great walker. So many of us walk without thinking, without really thinking about it. We don't really think about what it means to be great at walking, to truly be devoted to the endeavor of walking with a passion, with a fervor, with a, a routine. This hit home to me once that we don't really think so much about walking when my wife and I had moved to Manhattan with a one-year-old. We were dragging along. We sold our car. There are, cars are a pain to have in Manhattan. Although next time we have Mike on, maybe I'll ask him how he does it. He's one of those guys who sits in his car and waits for the street cleaners to pass by and pulls out and then he pulls back in. <laughs> he does that twice a week. But my wife and I were happy not to have the car. The subway is so convenient in Manhattan, and you can walk to everything you need. On my street, there were two bookstores, a post office, a cathedral, the Seinfeld Diner. Around the corner, a hardware store, more diners, an Italian grocery store, a pizza place, cafes, more grocery stores. Did I say that already? Bodegas. It was all right there. Everything you wanted. And then you start walking more and more, and you start saying, oh, geez, it's nice out. Instead of descending under the streets, why don't we just walk to the museum? It's only, it's only 12 more blocks. Or, hey, the park, we could, let's just walk to the park. It's only 20 blocks. Your walks get longer and longer. And, and then our, we had some friends come to visit us. They weren't living in Manhattan. They were living in a place like most places where you get around by car. They weren't used to so much walking. And they had a little one with a stroller also. And they said, this is so great. Manhattan, you can just jump in a cab whenever you want. And we said, well, we hadn't really done that. We didn't, we didn't take our car seat everywhere and, and cabs, the expense of it kind of added up, but we didn't really have that much money. And, and, and we had all these excuses. And then we said, well, we just walk. And so they said, oh, okay, we don't have to take cabs. We'll, we'll just walk to the restaurant and the museum and, and the park, all the places we were going. And <laughs> they weren't used to it. And we didn't really realize how used to it we had gotten, how built up our legs were and so on. And they didn't say anything until I, I spent the day with my wife and I, I met them, met up with them for dinner. And my friend was grumbling about my wife taking him on a baton death march. An exaggeration, of course. Don't at me for what he said. I get it. But it kind of hit home for me. We had become good at walking. And in spite of that, and even, even at our peak, compared to Wordsworth, we were pikers. Wordsworth walked for miles, for hours. He walked to get places, and he walked, of course, to experience nature and the outdoors. Thomas de Quincey estimated that Wordsworth walked something like 180,000 miles in his life. And on ugly legs, also according to De Quincey, in his phrase, Wordsworth, <laughs> we'll get to his poetry, don't worry. Wordsworth's legs, quote, were pointedly condemned by all the female connoisseurs he had come across, end quote. What the heck is that? Pointedly condemned? Who are these female connoisseurs of legs anyway in the 19th century? But what are they doing pointedly condemning? What does that even mean? Not just casually mentioned, I guess, by a connoisseur or two, a female connoisseur or two, but 
Worthy of disparagement. Just how ugly can legs be? Anyway, Wordsworth walked through Europe. He walked through hills in Somerset. He walked through London. And of course, he walked through the Lake District all over the place. Later, when Coleridge came, the two of them walked so much and at such odd hours, their neighbors thought they were French spies on some kind of reconnaissance mission. And apparently the the government took it so seriously, they dispatched some officers to keep an eye on these two walkers. Wordsworth's walking suffused his poetry. One of his earliest published poems was called An Evening Walk. On a walk with Dorothy, he encountered what Dorothy called a long belt of daffodils. We know what happened next. Other poems, too, were inspired by walks being struck by what one saw or heard or remembered or felt while on that walk. The one sense you don't find triggering much in Wordsworth is smell. Wordsworth had a condition called anosmia, which meant he couldn't smell anything. He thought he did once when he was out walking, of course, walking with a woman, And they suddenly came upon a garden full of sweet flowers, and the woman expressed her pleasure at their fragrance, and Wordsworth, we are told, fancied her sensation to be his own. It's such a strange story. You can't smell anything your whole life, and then someone smells something and exclaims how wonderful the smell is, and you believe that you've smelled it too. Ah, I believe that he believed it. Why would you make that up? But wouldn't you wonder why you had only had one such smell in your life? The mind is such a mystery. Less of a mystery are the legs and feet. Those are sturdy mechanisms. They move forward step after step like machines, and Wordsworth's were as good at that as anyone's, albeit apparently ugly. We skipped over Wordsworth's education, and in particular, the role that poetry played in it. His first published poems were an evening walk and descriptive sketches when he was in his early 20s. But before that, he'd been writing poetry, and maybe more to the point, he'd decided to become a poet. His great love was for nature, and he told us later that he decided that poets, the poets he was reading, the poets in English, All the greats, and he loved them. He loved Milton. But he had decided that poets had not yet captured nature or expressed nature the way he thought they should. Here are a couple of lines from that poem, The Evening Walk. And fronting the bright west, yon oak entwines its darkening boughs and leaves in stronger lines. And Wordsworth wrote a commentary on these lines, and he says, quote, This is feebly and imperfectly expressed, but I recollect distinctly the very spot where this first struck me. It was on the way between Hawkshead and Ambleside and gave me extreme pleasure. The moment was important in my poetical history, for I date from it my consciousness of the infinite variety of natural appearances which had been unnoticed by the poets of any age or country, so far as I was acquainted with them, and I made a resolution to supply in some degree the deficiency. I could not at that time have been above fourteen years of age. End quote. So, if we take Wordsworth at his word, and I don't see why we shouldn't here, this came about a year or so after his father had died, leaving Wordsworth an orphan. As my own experience on the Olympic Peninsula suggests, death has a way of making us even more sensitive to the wondrousness of the natural world and to the intensity of our own feelings, including grief and the desire to move beyond grief into something like awe or joy. So it's not necessarily a surprise that this moment happened not long after Wordsworth had had this loss. The extreme pleasure that he felt from this spot where he saw the branches of some oak trees, the branches and leaves against the background of the western sky, giving it a particular shadow and outline and color, though not a particular smell, poor Wordsworth. But the experience struck him with such extreme intensity that it made him question 
all the poetry he had read thus far. Why had they not captured this? Why was this not a part of what great poems did? Why had they not examined nature in this way and celebrated it and, and sought to understand it better and to really analyze and express the way that nature impacts us, has an impact on us, the perceivers of it? That's what Wordsworth felt at age 14, and it's what he dedicated the rest of his life to doing. His relatives complained that he had no taste for religion or the law or or some respectable profession. Well, this was his religion and his law. It was his whole world. It was nature and poetry and himself as a poet. Poetry, he later said, was, quote, his office upon earth, end quote. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll hear about Wordsworth's trip to France and how close he was to the French Revolution and how close he was to his sister Dorothy and to a Another great man and poet and a genius, really. He's been waiting in the wings, hasn't he? Samuel Taylor Coleridge. After this. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Ever since that first trip to France and Switzerland, Wordsworth's sympathies had been on the side of the revolution. His hatred of tyranny had led him to side with those who had sought to overthrow the monarchs. In 1791, after being awarded his degree from Cambridge, he headed back to France, where he attended sessions of the National Assembly and the Jacobin Club. Afterwards, he wrote a letter addressed to the Bishop of Landaff describing his experiences there, including first-hand knowledge of what was happening in revolutionary France. The letter was unfinished and unpublished, but in it he declares himself a Republican, an egalitarian, a defender of regicide, and the letter signaled his desire to join the fray of British political debate. These were ultra-radical views, and he eventually abandoned those views after the terror showed him the flip side of where that all could lead. But for now, he felt it as the start of a new day, a new era, and the possibilities excited him. In some very famous words, he said, Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven. That's from a poem called The French Revolution as it appeared to enthusiasts at its commencement. Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive. More bliss and more attachment to this period of youth and maybe some later regrets as well came from his falling in love with a French woman named Annette Vallon. She became pregnant and Wordsworth announced that he wanted to marry her, but things soured between Britain and France and he was forced to leave and in the end, and then he couldn't get back there. And in the end, he never did marry Annette and he would go for years without seeing either her or 
their daughter, Caroline. He supported them financially, but that was it. His money, by the way, came in after a long-standing dispute between his father and his father's employer that finally became settled and the kids were paid out, which meant that Wordsworth, while not exactly rich, didn't really have to work anymore. He could devote his, his life to poetry. Anyway, Wordsworth was blocked from visiting France for much of Caroline's childhood, blocked by the war, until a pause in the fighting between the two countries meant that he could travel there. This didn't come until 1802, when Caroline was nine years old, and Wordsworth then was planning to marry another woman. And he and Dorothy traveled together to France, and the purpose of the visit was to tell Annette the news. Wordsworth was engaged to another. He had never seen his daughter before that. The two of them went for a walk. Of course they did. <laughs> Just about everything significant in Wordsworth's life has a walk connected to it. I would say he should be called Walksworth, except words were pretty important to the guy too. Anyway, William and Caroline went for a walk on the beach and Wordsworth came back and wrote a sonnet about it. We haven't read much of his poetry yet, just a few lines here and there. Let's hear this one in full. It is a beauteous evening, calm and free. It is a beauteous evening, calm and free. The holy time is quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration. The broad sun is sinking down in its tranquility. The gentleness of heaven broods o'er the sea. Listen, the mighty being is awake and doth with his eternal motion make a sound like thunder everlastingly. Dear child, dear girl that walkest with me here, if thou appear untouched by solemn thought, thy nature is not therefore less divine. Thou liest in Abraham's bosom all the year and worshipst at the temple's inner shrine. God being with thee, when we know it not. It's a beautiful poem. Wordsworth is wrestling with some powerful feelings. Seeing a child that is yours after such a long period, having never seen her before, and now she's, she's grown. She's still young enough to be perfect, but old enough that you can regret not having known her better. And he reaches for some beautiful and powerful imagery. The evening is beauteous, the broad sun tranquil, the sea is gentle as heaven, or it has that gentleness of heaven brooding over it, at least, because we also hear the sea is, in a way, not gentle. We hear the mighty being of the sea that makes it sound, it makes a sound like thunder. The sea is never just gentle, is it? There's always power within it, the constant motion, tides and undertoes, the heaviness of that movement, the might. And he has the dear child, the dear girl walking with him, seemingly untouched by solemn thought, but never mind that. That's for grown-up poets and lamenting parents. She's sweet and innocent, and there's divinity in that too. We find divinity in sunsets and oceans, but also in poetic visions and parenting, worry warts, and the untroubled faces of youths. God is with her, not just in her times of trouble or her moments of pain or danger, but in moments of naivete and sweetness and gentle bliss. Mm, a great poem. With Wordsworth, some of the greatest poems have this biographical tinge. Enough of a hint to know that this is a real person talking, a person made of flesh and blood, who has felt things and wants to feel more. But also, it's not too confessional. We don't hear in the poem, for example, that this is his daughter whom he is meeting for the first time. The poem relies on the imagery and the abstraction to carry that power. We'll hear more poems where it works like that, and then we'll hear some poems, maybe, or we'll talk about some poems where it does not. We'll concentrate on the former and leave the latter poems to the Wordsworth scholars who are forced to be completists, even if it's at times against their will. You may have noticed, well, this would be hard to notice listening to the poem, but you might have sensed it from the time it took to read that poem. 
And actually, I bet a lot of you did sense this, that it was a sonnet. My guess is you could sense it because we've internalized the sonnet form. If the poem had had 13 lines or 15 lines, you might have felt a little uneasy, even if not knowing quite why. If you saw it on the page, you'd have felt it more keenly. An 11-line poem looks a little off. A 17-line poem, same thing. But no, it was 14. That magic sonnet number. There was one, one point where Wordsworth felt like the sonnet form was insufficient. It didn't do what he wanted it to do. But then he read some Milton, the sonnets of Milton, and he got a full head of steam for sonnets once again. Notes in Dorothy's journals will say things like, William read some Milton and then wrote two sonnets about Napoleon. <laughs> and a lot of, of Wordsworth's sonnets are like that. Commentary about Napoleon, I mean. Commentary, a vehicle for expressing political ideas. Argumentative, even. But this one that I just read had a more personal connection, and those are often the most successful, I've found. In all, Wordsworth has written, or he wrote, more than 400 sonnets. Let's go back to that stretch when he was back in England, knowing that he had a daughter and a baby mama in France, wanting to be a poet, stirred by revolution still in his mid-twenties. He wasn't alone. He had his sister Dorothy as a companion. His connection with his sister Dorothy was a close one. They were close as young children when they were living with both parents and tramping around the countryside. But after their mother died, and once again, that was when William was eight, Dorothy was a little younger. Dorothy was sent off to live with some relatives, and William went to boarding school. He didn't see her again for nine years. Then when they finally did get together, when William was in his late teens, they bonded. They lived together in a small house in Dorset and Alfoxton until William married her best friend, Dorothy's best friend, Mary Hutchinson, and then the three of them lived in the same house. Dorothy and William went on daily walks. She often took notes of what they saw, and you can find the same imagery in Wordsworth's poetry, as I mentioned with the daffodils. She was a writer, too. Not published in her lifetime, but her journals and papers have come out now, and they include a lot of descriptions of those walks and some travelogues and some children's stories that she wrote. And she was also a poetry aficionado. You can see her ideas being part of the conversation. We could do a whole episode on Dorothy or on the relationship that Dorothy had with William, but let's just wrap things up by now by, for a bit on Dorothy by saying that in later life, her health declined. She became addicted to painkillers, opium and laudanum. Laudanum is just opium mixed with alcohol, by the way. Throughout her infirmity, William was her main caretaker until he died in 1850. But we've got to move on. Wordsworth, when he returned from France, became influenced by the writings of William Godwin, our old friend, Mary Wollstonecraft's partner, Mary Shelley's father, and eventual, eventually Percy Shelley's father-in-law. Wordsworth met Godwin and was taken by him. He began writing essays and poetry and a play that advanced, the only play he ever wrote, play that advanced some of Godwin's philosophical views. But then he kind of rejected those views as, as a little too confining for a poet, too schematic, too didactic. He needed to be free to focus on his mind wherever it took him, not at the service of a particular set of views, but at the service of poetry, capital P. We're now in 1795. Wordsworth is in his mid-twenties. And some money comes in. He can focus on his career as a poet. He's published a few poems by now. And then he meets another poet named Samuel Taylor Coleridge. The two recognized one another as kindred spirits almost immediately. Coleridge admired Wordsworth's early work, and he recognized it. Coleridge was a great critic. By the way, maybe as good as Dr. Johnson. Those two are as good at literary criticism as anyone I've ever seen in English literature. Coleridge got what Wordsworth was doing, saw what he was up to, affirmed him. And then came a kind of miraculous year, the 16 months from June 1779, uh, sorry, June 1797 
to October 1798. Coleridge took a house near a village called Nether Stowey in Somerset, near some hills that reminded William and Dorothy of their home in the Lake District. Wordsworth had been splitting his time between London and Somerset for the past year or so. The three of them, William, Dorothy, and Coleridge, went for long walks together every single day, and they discussed nature and poetry and life, and they developed a plan for poetry and what it should do, and William and Coleridge put this plan into action in their book called Lyrical Ballads, which has a preface that came a year or so later in the second edition, and it sets out this theory of poetry the Romantic Manifesto, that preface is called. The book has been hugely influential, and it started, let's say, a 10-year stretch in which almost all of Wordsworth's great poetry was written. Lyrical ballads is often considered the real beginning of English Romanticism. It contains, I guess when they say that, they're discounting Blake, but that's because Blake was so so idiosyncratic, his own genius confined to himself. Nobody was like him, <laughs> but he's lumped in. That's okay. I, I'll take my lumps, as Saul Bellow said in another context. Okay, anyway, lyrical ballads contain several excellent poems, including two masterworks, Coleridge's Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and Wordsworth's Lines Written a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, and many other poems too, including a few head scratchers. But they were experiments, Wordsworth said. Wordsworth contributed most of the poems by number, but Coleridge's tended to be longer, especially Ancient Mariner, and so he ended up about a third of the book by volume was from Coleridge. Coleridge was a great champion of Wordsworth. He was an encourager, an ardent supporter, a fan. You could say that Coleridge was admirably willing to set aside his own ambition to help advance those of his friend, Wordsworth. And and he'd maybe be given a little more credit for this in our collective memories, except he was also such a drag on the Wordsworths due to his personal failings, especially his drug addiction. So you could say a poetic champion as a friend, maybe a well-meaning one, but not in a position to be as helpful as he might have been. But at the time of lyrical ballads, this was kind of in the future, and the two of them, Wordsworth and Coleridge, spurred one another into producing this book that was not well-received or reviewed particularly, but has since become a landmark of English literature, generally credited with changing the course of English poetry. Much of what is different about lyrical ballads is stated in that preface I mentioned, the one that accompanied the 1800 edition of the book. The preface has become almost as famous as the poems themselves, maybe even more so. It contains a sort of key to understanding romanticism, and some views on poetry that are still in common currency. Wordsworth and Coleridge surveyed the field of 18th century poetry and found it to be too highfalutin, priggish, overworked, academic-y, not what real people would say or think or feel. It was poets impressing other poets with their crafted lines, taking on remote and erudite topics. Wordsworth and Coleridge wanted poetry about common people, including poor people, written in language that the common people would use. As Wordsworth put it in an advertisement for the book, quote, the majority of the following poems are to be considered as experiments. They were written chiefly with a view to ascertain how far the language of conversation in the middle and lower classes of society is adapted to the purpose of poetic pleasure, end quote. As he put it, memorably, famously, in the preface, poetry should be written in, quote, the language really used by men, end quote. You can see how the French Revolution played into this, as well as the Rousseauian idea 
that people are essentially good but are corrupted by society. Well, let's return to the language of the unsullied, the commoners, the hardworking people who live real lives, decent folks, loving and, and suffering and struggling to get by. What they think and experience and feel is valid. And it should be told in a way that's natural to them, in a vernacular language and not the rarefied air of a poet writing ornate polysyllabic verse. And for the poet, I think this is even more influential. The poet, the poet's job is not to, to put on a necktie and sit in some fancy drawing room or study in some mansion, let's say, generating verse that demonstrates his or her intellect. It's to be part of the world, to think your thoughts and feel your feels, and then to write about it in a way that explores the depths inside yourself as brought about by your interactions with the natural world or with your fellow humans. The phrase for this, Wordsworth's phrase for this, is that poetry should be, quote, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility, end quote. You can see all three of these concepts at work in the titles to the poems gathered in Lyrical Ballads. Actually, the title, Lyrical Ballads, kind of contains those ideas. Ballads are songs of the people. Lyrical is the singing. The singing of the poet. Those are the three concepts I mean. First, that poetry can take as its subject common people in the lives they live, both their outer and their inner lives. And second... Poetry can be in the language natural to those people. And third, the poet's job is to capture the depths and complexity of the thoughts and feelings of those events. And you might think, well, that's all commonplace. Isn't he just stating the obvious? And who could disagree with those ideas? That poetry is essentially about people, real people, in language real people use. And the poet's job is to capture it and express it well, Yes, who could disagree? In large part, that's because they've become so influential. They're hard to even see as new and fresh. It's because Wordsworth and Coleridge had such an effect. Remember our episode on Phyllis Wheatley, the great American poet who began life in Africa as a slave and grew up in Massachusetts? I mean, she, she began life in Africa. She was enslaved, brought to America. She grew up in Massachusetts, and she became the first African-American to publish a book of poems. She lived from 1753 to 1784. One of the remarkable things in reading her poems is that as good as they are, they don't give us what we want. We get hints of her past and what she made of it. We get glimpses of emotion, but for the most part, the poems are written in another tradition. They're written for specific occasions. Think of a poem that someone might write for an, a newspaper to celebrate the end of a war or the return of a hero or an especially good harvest. Something. Think of verse to be read at a ribbon-cutting ceremony for a new building or a poem for graduation, or a wedding ceremony. Those are adequate reasons for poems. We can admire their craft, but they don't move us the way we want poetry to move us. They don't tell us what Phyllis Wheatley's inner life was truly like. We get snatches of it, but we don't get her sitting down to make that as her project. And I think, I think, my theory is that this is because she came 15 years before Lyrical Ballads and not 15 years after. Once Wordsworth and Coleridge made the case, it opened the doors for others to write that way too. And now we can't imagine poetry that doesn't pursue the goals that they taught us to value. Now, I mentioned, I think... I don't quite remember. I was on a roll. Uh, but I think I mentioned that you can get these three concepts just from the titles of the lyrical ballads themselves. And this is what I meant. Here's the table of contents for the first edition of the lyrical ballads. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, that's Coleridge. The, Foster's Mo the Foster Mother's Tale, Coleridge. 
lines left upon a seat in a yew tree which stands near the lake of Estwaite. And we have, that's a very Wordsworthian title. Just a description of where he was. That nature, a yew tree, a seat in a yew tree. And then I've, I left these lines there. The Nightingale, a conversational poem. That's Coleridge. The Female Vagrant. Goody Blake and Harry Gill. Right? People. Real people. Not King so-and-so, Queen such-and-such. Goody Blake. Harry Gill. Then there's this another words title. Lines written at a small distance from my house and sent by my little boy to the person to whom they are addressed. Okay, there we go. Next one, Simon Lee, the old huntsman. See, these are ballads of the people. Almost like folk tales. Then, anecdote for fathers. Next one, we are seven. Next one, lines written in early spring. Then we get the thorn, the last of the flock, the dungeon, that was Coleridge, the mad mother, the idiot boy, ballads of the people. Lines written near Richmond upon the Thames at evening. Okay. Expostulation and reply. The tables turned, an evening scene on the same subject. Old man traveling. The complaint of a forsaken Indian woman. The convict. And finally, lines written a few miles above Tintern Abbey. In the second edition of the Lyrical Ballads, we get some new titles. I won't read them all. There's a bunch of new poems, a bunch of new poems, but... We get some new titles like Andrew Jones, The Two Thieves, or The Last Stage of Avarice, A World Blast from Behind the Hill, and etc. Song for the Wandering Jew, Ruth, Lines Written with a Slate Pencil Upon a Stone, etc. That is a great title. Lines written with a slate pencil upon a stone, etc. Lines written on a tablet in a school. The Two April Mornings. The Fountain, a conversation. Nutting. Three years she grew in sun and shower, etc. The Pet Lamb, a pastoral. And the last one I'm going to mention, written in Germany on one of the coldest days of the century. You see what I mean by those titles? These are poems that depend on the poet. Where the poet is. Where these, where these lines were written. Because the inspiration that seizes the poet, which often comes out of being by a river, or, or it being a cold day, or it being uh, in a yew tree, being, taking a seat in Utah or being in a school or writing on a slate with a pencil. <laughs> the poet's position when, when the moment of inspiration strikes is important, even essential to understanding the project of this poem. And it, it's, the, it's the moment, and why does that matter so much? It's the moment that the poet Matthew Zapruder described when he was here on the podcast, and he discussed Keats with us in our Nabokov and Freud episode. That felt like a lot of name-dropping there, but I'm just trying to point you toward that episode in our archives. It's about Nabokov and Freud, but it's with the poet Matthew Zapruder, and he's discussing his favorite poem by Keats. And we discuss the poetic process and why Matthew Zapruder loves poetry. And he said, because there is that moment when the poet is in the poetic frame of mind, composing, digging, looking for the spark, the fire. And I'm paraphrasing all this. Diving into the mines and emerging with the gems. The poet is open. The poetry derives from a, a place that's half him or her and half magic. And we are suddenly privy to the thoughts and music of someone else's inner life. We get to share in that mind and that magic. Lines written on a tablet in school. That sounds mundane. Right? 
There's nothing fancy about that title. But there's a lot of mystery in that mundanity. And a lot of room for the genius of Wordsworth, a poet with a capital P, to give us something worthwhile from that place and that time as he considered those ideas and those emotions that he felt. Okay, I can see we're running long. There's a lot to cover. So let's save the poetry of Wordsworth for a part two episode. We'll do another episode, at least one, just on Tintern Abbey. We could do a whole episode on that, and I think we will. Or, and then maybe we'll do Wordsworth's greatest hits. We got to do some, some stuff from the prelude too, I would think. But don't hold me to that. The best laid plans, etc. But that's what I'm thinking right now. That's why, that's how I'm justifying that we're going to finish up the life of William Wordsworth without diving into too much of his poetry. Although we will do some of that too. So let's take our Last break, and then hear what happened in the rest of Wordsworth's life. After lyrical ballads came out in its multiple editions, Wordsworth became a kind of center point of Poetic discussion. The ideas took a while to take hold, and in the meantime, they were the subject of much debate. Wordsworth continued to write poetry that reflected his beliefs. The money that had been owed to his father finally came through and was paid out to William and his siblings, which put the Wordsworths on stronger financial footing and enabled him to be generous to other poets and literary types. He bought a house and hosted literary gatherings. He got engaged to Mary Hutchinson. He wrote some masterpieces like Ode Intimations of Immortality and something he called A Poem to Coleridge, which we now know as The Prelude. The full title was The Prelude, or Growth of a Poet's Mind, an autobiographical poem. The Prelude was supposed to serve as an introduction to a poem called The Recluse, which Wordsworth never actually finished. He started this poem in his 20s, started planning it out, and he only finished parts of it. It was supposed to have three parts, three long parts, but he really only made headway on the second part, and he left some bits and pieces of the other two parts. But in some ways, that makes it sound like the prelude, which was like the introduction to this major work. That makes it sound like the prelude is, is a story of a failure, but the prelude was a great success. In and of itself, the prelude is an amazing poem. The recluse, well, I guess that's a failure, or at least Wordsworth considered it to be. The recluse was supposed to be an answer to Milton and a surpassing of Milton's Paradise Lost. It was going to be a philosophical poem, quote, containing views of man, nature, and society, and to be entitled The Recluse as having for its principal subject the sensations and opinions of a poet living in retirement, end quote. He, that was his plan in, the, in his late 20s. He was already thinking of that. The poet living in retirement, looking back, giving those opinions and sensations. Milton had written Paradise Lost in his famous words, to justify the ways of God to men. And Wordsworth said, my topic will be just as good. It's to explore and explain my mind and imagination. That's an epic story, too. I wonder if one of the problems for Wordsworth, he spent decades working on this poem or wishing it into existence or lamenting its, its lack of existence. I wonder if one of the problems is that Wordsworth himself could not quite recover from his own transition the French Revolution had brought promise. He himself felt it. He felt the stirrings of excitement at the idea that the people would be ascendant. They'd cast aside much of the atrophied society and institutions. And there was going to bring about a new way of living, closer to nature, more in touch with more earthly concerns. And then he saw what happened in France when the people turned into kind of a mob during the terror, and he began to see problems with the people in England as well. It's not just these institutions, he complained, it's the people running them. 
He soured on the project of the people. Well, what did that mean for his poetry? He had staked out a claim where the people were the, the, the people were the pinnacle. And we see that kind of draining of spirit in his poetry and in his life, too. He took a government position. Oh, wait, before I get to that and tell you what it was, let me give you a line from one of his biographies. Two lines, actually. This is, this is Jonathan Bate, who wrote a biography of Wordsworth. And Wordsworth, he said, had, quote, the longest, dullest decline in literary history, end quote. And he said that most Wordsworth biographies which doggedly feel compelled to describe Wordsworth's whole life, not just the miraculous decade when he was cranking out masterpieces, but the 40 years after that, too. He lived to be 80. And those biographies, said Jonathan Bate, become unreadable. And his quote is, the chances are that you will lose the will to live somewhere around the halfway mark. End quote. Oh, jeez. From a book. <laughs> Wordsworth, this excited and revolutionary young man wanting to push poetry forward to meet up with those ideals, the guy became a mouthpiece for the church and the state. Turdsworth, Byron called him. Keats went to visit Wordsworth, hoping to pay homage but Wordsworth was out campaigning for the Tories. Now Wordsworth mixed his walks and his poetry with his official job as the distributor of stamps for Westmoreland, a cushy government job that paid him well. Ralph Waldo Emerson went to visit Wordsworth, who is one of his heroes. In 1833, when Wordsworth was in his 60s, Emerson was quite a bit younger, and Wordsworth lectured Emerson. Emerson listened to him patiently as he railed against America. He was pompous, tiresome, telling him America was vulgar and greedy. And he said, what America needs is a civil war in order to teach America. This is, he's not talking about slavery and the civil war that came 30 some years later. He thought America needed a civil war in order to teach America to knit the social ties stronger. Emerson concluded that Wordsworth had, quote, written longer than he was inspired, end quote. Suggestion there is that the poetry suffered from this. Turning away from Wordsworth's early ideals, Byron had noticed a slide into self-parody early on. What had once been paradigm-breaking for its focus on simplicity, the simplicity of people and their feelings and sensations, had become, Byron said, puerile, childish. In 1807, at the tail end of Wordsworth's truly great period, he wrote a poem called To the Spade of a Friend that has been much mocked. This is Wordsworth lost, adrift, humorless, not realizing how dry the well has become, no longer certain of the approach that had come so naturally when he and Coleridge and Dorothy were taking those walks. The world had changed, or at least his view of it had, and he didn't know how to change his poetry along with it. Virginia Woolf's cousin, J.K. Stephen, captured these two Wordsworths in a poem I'll read now. Two voices are there. One is of the deep, it learns the storm cloud's thunderous melody, now roars, now murmurs with the changing sea, now bird-like pipes, now closes soft in sleep. And one is of an old half-witted sheep which bleats articulate monotony and indicates that two and one are three, that grass is green, lakes damp, and mountains steep. And Wordsworth, both are thine. Did you catch all that? The first half of the poem talks about Wordsworth at his best, where the poet is capturing the storm cloud's thunderous melody and feels the deep and the roars and the murmurs of the changing sea and can, can match one's voice 
to bring all that to us. And then the other one is just someone who's trying to do the same thing, but ends up being like a half-witted sheep. Bleating, articulate monotony. Telling us things we already know. Delivering cliches. Grass is green. Okay. Thank you, poet. Two and one are three. Great. Glad I'm reading this. Lakes are damp. <laughs> okay. Water. Water is wet. We get it. Mountains are... Oh, boy. That mountain. Steep. Ah. <sighs> Or Wordsworth. Wordsworth was named Poet Laureate of England in 1843, although by this point he hardly wrote anymore. He didn't write any official poems as Poet Laureate, honorary position. These are the last seven years of his life now, and he died in 1850. An old man, kind of cranky in his views, but still hosting literary guests and doing some kindnesses for people like Coleridge's son. He had a soft spot for Coleridge's son. He had outlived his friends, he outlived his poetic glory days, and these later years cast a shadow on his early efforts for his contemporaries. But the good news is we don't need to worry about those later decades or the bad poetry that came out of them. We don't need to wish that he had died young, which is a strange wish to make, but it's one we often do with artists who get old and, and change and seem to undermine what we value them for the most. We can just we, we just scissor out those last four decades and just read the works from his period of greatness. There are plenty of them to keep us busy. We'll save Tintern Abbey for another episode, but in the meantime, let's take up another one. Another sonnet called Composed Upon Westminster Bridge. This poem is dated September 3rd, 1802. Wordsworth is 32 years old. We think it's actually written July 31st of that year when William and Dorothy were preparing to leave London on their way to Dover and go from there to France. It's London in the morning. Busy, industrialized, polluted, humming London. A London that, that Wordsworth didn't always love. In fact, he blamed London or blamed the city Urbanity for things he didn't like about England and about life and the world. But this is London in the morning in its early and quiet hours. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning. Silent, bare, ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. We heard Virginia Woolf's cousin mock the two Wordsworths. We saw the two Wordsworths frustrate the next generation of romantic poets who wanted a hero and mentor, not a cranky uncle. But this poem makes me think of two Wordsworths in a better way. Wordsworth hated the city for the most part. He saw that the, the urban life as dreary and stultifying and emblematic of the kind of world he didn't want to live in. He wanted the pure, the natural, the more innocent, the pastoral. And that's fine and legitimate that he wants that. I don't want my poets to be dishonest about what they feel, but I also want them to be open. He hated the city, but he could love it too. And isn't that what we want from life? You might hate a certain kind of music, but then you grow to love it. Or, or there's that one song that you have to admit speaks to you somehow. Maybe it's opera or jazz or pop music or country or hip hop or something. That's not your thing. But there's that one song that gives you a window into what everyone else loves about that music. Or it's a person who isn't one of your people. But you can admire something about him or her. You might not care for the beach, but by God, on the right day, with the sun at the right angle, you can glimpse the divine. And here's Wordsworth, finding it in a place he didn't expect. You can feel his emotion 
spontaneously overflowing, filling his vessel and ours too. His soul was not yet dull. He could live and he could love and he could write some beautiful, beautiful poetry. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks. Well, I guess no one to thank today, is there? We didn't have a guest. It's been a while since I did a solo episode. My thanks to Wordsworth, kind of, I guess. And to all of you poets and poetry fans and walkers out there. Maybe this should be the year of walks. I mentioned Wordsworth and his 180,000 miles, estimated. He might have walked more than that, actually. And let's put this in terms you might understand. 10,000 steps is a goal for a lot of you with your fitness watches and trackers, right? 10,000 steps, you try to do that every day? That's about four miles for the average woman and a little closer to five for the average man with a little bit longer stride. Let's call it four and a half. You would need to hit that target every day for 40,000 days or about 109 years. Good luck, fellow walker. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.